This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. And my guest today is science journalist Ed Young, a staff writer at The Atlantic, winner of the Pulitzer Prize for explanatory reporting for his coverage of the COVID-19 pandemic. Young also writes books, most recently, An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. The book unspools into a remarkable travelogue through the animal kingdom with this extensive tour focusing as the subtitle suggests, on the senses of a sweeping array of critters with a bonanza of revelatory explorations along the way. Befitting a reporter who has been awarded a Pulitzer for explanatory reporting, Young articulates even the most complex sensory mechanism with supreme eloquence as well as generous dollops of humor. And in fashioning an immense world, he goes deep and wide. The book is sprawling and detailed, while also managing to be nimble and deft, often reflecting a joyful sense of discovery his reporting has provoked. We'll discuss this fascinating book with its author, Ed Young, in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. A quick programming note, tomorrow, August 25th, I'll be filling in for Nancy C., 3 to 6 p.m. I do a music show once, uh, maybe, or twice a year. So if you tune in, you'll probably understand why why there's the actual reason for that. So that's tomorrow, 3 to 6, filling in for Nancy, doing a music show. Later in today's program, I'll talk with Christina Holtz, the owner of Bay Paws Pet Resort. The Ybor City location will host a Clear the Shelters adoption event this Saturday, August 27th. One of many such Clear the Events shelters, uh, shelter events taking place not just locally but across the country. The one happening at Bay Paws will bring together a handful of local rescues and vendors. More on this a bit later in today's show. Right now, though, let's talk with Ed Young about his latest book, an immense world, how animal senses reveal the hidden realms around us, with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Ed Young on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Ed. Hi, good morning. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So congratulations on the book, which is, I think my introduction probably made clear, I found truly innovative and a thrilling read. So I look forward to discussing the book in a moment. But I'd like to first discuss the genesis of An Immense World for a moment. So in the acknowledgments, you recall that while sitting in a London cafe uh, four years ago with your wife, Liz Neely, you told her you wanted to write another book, but your, quote, well of ideas had run dry, end quote. And I thought that was really uh, surprising. And I think others familiar with your work would maybe have a similar reaction. At that point, you had written one book, and your stuff in the Atlantic is teeming with ideas. So I guess I'm curious to know, are the day-to-day demands of that journalism, and especially maybe covering COVID-19, such that you just felt tapped out or thought you were tapped out when it came to writing book number two? Oh, so uh, the that moment in the cafe, my little moment of uh, self-deprecation occurred well before the pandemic started. Um, but I think, you know, it, it reflects the, the fact that you know, a book is a meaty thing. You know, you 
you, I've got loads of great ideas, but which of those ideas are substantial and profound enough to warrant someone's attention for 300 plus pages? I, I don't take that question lightly. And I think Liz's suggestion of writing about the senses of other animals became an obvious answer to that problem, because here is a topic that is so vast and so philosophically and scientifically rich that, of course, it, it, you know, it could fill up the pages of an entire book. It, it, in fact, it's a topic that I think demands a book-length project to really get at it, um, to really explore it in the depth required, um, and to create that sort of profound sense of joy and wonder that I hope readers of the finished product will get. Oh, for sure. And, and I think that's the case. I just found it curious, at least at that moment, that you felt like, geez, I don't know if I've got another book in me right now. And then it seems like what I'm holding in my hand suggests, uh, boy, do you, and then some. <laughs> Uh, just because, again, the book, like you say, is a substantial tome. But one of the things, too, that's just so great, kind of like a, I guess, an added bonus, for lack of a better phrase, is that the footnotes are extensive. And really, if you somehow cobbled those together, those might make a, a, a decent-sized book themselves. So just there's there's just so much reporting and, and stuff that obviously you found fascinating that you, that you do as asides or additional comments to the reader, which are just an extra treat, I think. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I wanted the, the footnotes to be um, to do a couple of things. Uh, you know, they're, they're a place for like some jokes, some funny asides. Uh, they're places for stuff that just didn't fit with the main flow of the book, but were were really really fascinating. Um, and uh, you know, there, there were bits. Of, there were places for clarification. Um, you know, there are always exceptions to every rule when you write about nature, and I wanted to make those clear. But I think you know, they, it, it's part of what I hope is the playful spirit of the book. Um, you know, I don't think people would normally look to the footnotes as a place for, uh, you know, amusement or joy, but I hope that they fulfill that function here. And I think they reflect the fact that there is so much about the senses of animals that, that is, is incredible um, and that, you know, even with a 360-page book, um, barely fits within that well, that's the thing. I think uh, I was going to talk with you about this later, but this was as good a time as any. There's like a real joy and like an ongoing sense of discovery that just radiates from the book. Because obviously, as you've done, you know, this bit of reporting or went to visit this researcher, you uh, obviously were super excited by, by what you found or what you learned or what they told you. And that's captured on the page. But sometimes it's like, well, there's more. If you look down at the bottom of the page in a slightly smaller uh, type uh, that I have to say about that kind of exciting and stimulating experience. Yeah, um, I think uh, visiting scientists who study the senses of other, other animals was a critical part of the book. I think partly because their enthusiasm, um, their, their infectious joy at their work and the creatures they study, um, I think bleeds across to the page and, and hopefully to a reader. You know, I think that's especially important for creatures that a lot of people might find disgusting or off-putting. You know, I had a there's a bit in the book where I talk about standing in this room full of giant spiders with a woman who studies spiders. And, you know, she also studies things like elephants, which I think people would find more charismatic. But spiders are her true love. And she explains, like, the, the incredible ways in which they perceive the vibrations coursing through their webs and how, um, you know, we could be standing in the same space as them and have this radically different experience of that same reality. And, and I think that um, that curiosity um, that some that a person could manifest for a creature like a spider is is crucial to the book you know it's, it's really about trying to empathize with the experiences of creatures that are very different to us even when they are animals that I think most people might not 
uh, you know, uh, reflectively adore. Yeah, and I found that as someone who's particularly has trouble with mosquitoes and you're reporting on the mosquitoes and what does draw them to people and, and then what, of course, prompts them then to bite in that, well, I don't know if that's going to help me in the next time I'm out and about, but I mean, at least I'll know why they're biting me. <laughs> right. Certainly, I'm not a fan of mosquitoes, but at least I have a lot more respect for them. You know, I think that the, 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 mos- um, the, the mosquito is a good example of the central concept of, of this book, which is the, the concept of the umbelt, the sensory bubble in which all animals live in. Um, so each creature has its own set of sights and smells and sounds that it can perceive, but that other animals might not be able to perceive. And, for example, a mosquito's umbelt is really... Fi- those, especially for the species that, that bite humans, are very, very finely tuned to the cues that we give off. Um, so the, the mosquito that spreads things like dengue and Zika is attuned to the heat of a human body, to the smell of human skin, to the carbon dioxide released in our breath. Those are all part of its umbelt. Um, you know, our umbelt includes all the colors that we can see, all the fine textures that we can feel with a very sensitive fingertip. But it doesn't include, for example... Um, the magnetic or electric fields that other animals can sense or all the smells that my dog can pick up. Um, Each creature, whether it's a mosquito or a human, is is limited in its own way. And so an immense world is an exploration of all those worlds. You know, in your intro, you called it a travelogue. And I I think of it as exactly that, a, a journey through all these different sensory landscapes. Yeah, and it's so extensive. And again, as you've noted with the umwelt element, which I guess is is sort of like, I guess, maybe like a sort of a framing device, right, in terms of presenting all this and and how how I feel about a mosquito might be different, obviously, than what the mosquito is experiencing when there's carbon dioxide that I'm putting out there and so the mosquitoes drawn to me or any number of other things that are happening including the spiders and their vibrations as you noted in their webs i mean it seems like that that the concept of umwelt really helps you to understand that in a lot of cases there's a, a obviously a, a number of animals and creatures and critters discussed here but often the twain doesn't meet like the, what what one experiences or how they experience uh color let's say or or sound uh, doesn't necessarily meet up with how I do or how the next animal does, but they're really important and interesting to to understand how that particular animal does, and it's 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 something to take with you into a, hopefully a broader understanding of just critters at large. Yeah, I I, I agree. Um, you know, I think that the concept is one of the most the, the Umbel's concept is one of the most profound and important in in all of biology. It, it tells us that. Um, our experience of the world, even though it seems complete, is actually just very partial. You know, we're only perceiving a small sliver of reality, and other creatures have their own little slivers. Their, their experience of the world is also partial too. That, I think, is a, is a very leveling idea. It puts humans on this sort of uh, same playing field as, as a lot of other creatures. It's very humbling. It shows that there's a lot we're missing, even in, in environments that... Um, that are familiar to us. You know, when I walk in my neighborhood with my dog, um, I am not smelling most of the things that he's smelling. I'm missing a lot. And I I can understand what I'm missing by thinking about um, his nose and his sense of smell. Uh, It changes my experience of my own reality um, in a way that I think exposes flickers of magic in things that would otherwise be mundane. 
and then yes, I think absolutely it it expands our understanding of what other creatures are experiencing. You know, what a bee um, sees of a flower, what a songbird might hear in its own song. All of these things are different to what we see and hear of these things. Um, and you know, I, I think by thinking about these sensory bubbles, we really start to appreciate animals in in, in their own right and in new and important ways. And one of the things that, uh, in addition to that, I mean, there were just so many things I loved about this book, including what might be called peripheral virtues, because in addition to what you just described, to me, in a period marked by so many uh, polarizing figures and issues politically and culturally and so on, where people seem particularly disinclined to understand a different point of view or, or just even put themselves in the position of, of understanding, even if they're not going to agree what that person's point of view or how they arrived at it. This book repeatedly invites the reader to learn about ways that, that animals do perceive a sound, a taste, a color. In other words, the, to put themselves in other shoes or hooves or paws or claws, which I think is just a great thing to cultivate, like I say, these days, just how, however it's spurred. I, I agree. I completely agree. You know, I think that it, it, it's important for us to understand that even with these, um, this basic aspect of our mental lives, like the, the information that we can perceive in the world around us, we differ. You know, we, we vary. Um, we are different from other animals. We are different as individuals within a single species. And it, I think it shows just how different we are. Um, I, I think, Ben, that the act of stepping into the sensory world, into the umwelten of other animals, um, is a, a profound act of empathy. Um, yeah. As you say, I think that we are a, a bit uh, lacking in that right now. You know, you, you've mentioned my pandemic coverage. I, I could argue that a lot of the problems that we face during the pandemic um, have come from a catastrophic lack of empathy for each other. Um, and, you know, I, I sort of see empathy as a, as a muscle. I think you can build it. I think you can flex it. And I think, I, you know, I would hope that by encouraging people to um, extend the full force of their empathy to creatures that are incredibly different to them, um, that, you know, there might be some lovely trickle-down benefits to uh, our ability to think of the lives of other people who are very different to us. For sure. Well, yeah, sort of a ongoing, uh, often low-key or even unexpressed uh, premise of this show is that by talking about animals and all kinds of animals from week to week, that I'm hoping at least that then in people that maybe don't have tremendous compassion necessarily inherently or maybe just they grew up in a, in a family culture where that animals just weren't part of it or weren't encouraged or just thought of as a property that's, you know, chained out outside if, it's, if it even exists. And just that that over time hopefully does cultivate a, a sense of compassion that extends not only beyond and how they feel about animals, but to a broader, to a broader application. And, um, and again, I think your book is doing that on a, on a, on a colossal level just because there's just so many animals and critters and senses that we're talking about. And it's like, it's just fascinating to, to learn about these. But, but if you just take a moment and sort of ponder and absorb, you know, how that, how that uh, mosquito is responding or how that elephant is hearing or, or feeling something that we can't even be aware of by virtue of the vibration. I mean, it's, 
it's got to be inspiring in some way or hopefully inspire some some revisiting of some points of view. I, I hope so too. You know, the, the book is, I think, full of like exotic and, and uh, very cool creatures. You know, it's got naked mole rats and star-nosed moles and mantis shrimp and electric fish. It's also got a lot of charismatic creatures that I think a lot of people love, like sea turtles and elephants and dogs. But, you know, I think you, you could... You, it's it's easy to come away from it um, and uh, with a newfound appreciation for even um, ordinary and and perhaps boring animals. You know, um, when I walk my dog uh, every morning, we almost certainly pass by sparrows and starlings. Um, each of those birds has wraparound vision. You know, they can see um, in almost a full circle around their heads without needing to turn their heads, so that as they're walking, as so. For them, the visual world is not something they walk into, but something that they move through, that surrounds them. Um, they can see this entire dimension of colors that we don't have access to, so that their own plumage or the colors of the flowers around them will look very different to their eyes than to ours. When they fly, they'll feel air currents moving over their wings in ways that I struggle to imagine. Um, you know, in all of these ways, these these species are magnificent, I think, through the simple act of their existence. They don't need to be doing anything extraordinary to be extraordinary. And these are some of the most um, common uh, and, you know, and, and frequent animals that I encounter. Um, I, I think, I, I hope that by reading this book... Um, you know, we we don't own. Um, it, it's it's not just that readers extend their empathy and curiosity to, um, you know, to the the most charismatic uh, animals around them, but also to the ones that are in their backyard all the time, or, or perhaps the ones that they might uh, ignore or or be repulsed by. You know, the the spiders or the um, you know or the, or the the bugs that share their homes. I think each of those has its own sensory world. Each of those has its own little story to tell. And and even the way that the reporting and some of the th- thoughts about different perceptions, even if you've thought a lot about animals over a lot of years, which I, I think certainly applies to me, for example, just like the way you're describing a bird flying in a certain way and the vision that that bird has to both keep flying, to not obviously run into anything or, or hit, hit any kind of trouble, literally or figuratively, but also to look down below for a fish or something that it might swoop down on. I mean, it makes perfect sense, but I mean, I just don't think a lot of us have an opportunity to ponder exactly how those mechanics would work until they, they read something that's describing this often very poetically in action. Yeah, you know, I think that um, it's it's very natural to just assume that animals um, experience the world in the same thing in the same way we do, and, and I think it's natural to do that because our experience of the world feels so complete. You know, I'm not sitting here um, feeling like there are holes in my perception that there are things that I'm not getting, and yet there absolutely are. And I think unless we think about that, we we miss a lot of the magic that animals are capable of. So. You know, songbirds um, sing often these very complex songs. And, and um, you know, if you listen to, to these, um, I'm certainly struck by this feeling that surely there must be something I'm missing here. There's like, there's, there are like important features in the, in the moments between the notes that I can't perceive. And there absolutely are. You know, I think songbirds um, 
have hearing that operates on a faster time scale. So they really are hearing stuff in their songs that we are missing. Um, you know, the, the colors that we see around us, a, a lot of the flowers that we think of as being monochrome have vivid ultraviolet markings on them that guide pollinating insects to, um, to their stentors. Um, the, the air around us full of sounds that we can't hear, either because they're infrasonic, they're too deep for us to hear, or ultrasonic, too high for us to hear. Even really familiar creatures like rats and mice, um, you know, have been trading ultrasonic messages for the entirety of their, their existence um, that we can't hear. You know, my, um, rodents will sing ultrasonic serenades to each other when they're courting. Um, there's so much of the world that we're missing, and I think so much about animal behavior that we misinterpret um, because we're not thinking about their sensory world in their own right. Yeah, well, that's the thing. You're giving us entree into, in some ways, like a secret society, like those songs that those rodents are exchanging or whatever. Even if you think a lot about animals, once again, why would you imagine that's the case unless you're presented that information? And then you think, wow, that's that gives me a whole different perspective on that rat or that mouse. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, you, you, I think you mentioned imagination, and I think that's crucial here. Um, you know, we... We are limited by our own senses, and that affects how we perceive the natural world. You know, it wasn't until um, the 1940s when um, Donald Griffin and other scientists realized that bats have this incredible ability called echolocation. Um, they produce high-pitched sounds, um, and they listen out for the echoes that rebound, that, that, uh, as they, they listen out for the echoes as those sounds rebound off objects in the world around them. Um, it's, it's sort of a way of tricking the silent world to reveal itself. You know, the, the bat says Marco and its surroundings can't help but say Polo. <laughs> this, this ability is, is extraordinary, I, I think. Um, but for, for the longest time, um, no one no, knew that it happened. Like humans, some blind people have been echolocating um, uh, throughout our history. And, and it, was never, it was never regarded as, as being equivalent to what bats are doing. But at the moment when we realized that bats are capable of this, scientists could then look to see if other animals do the same. And the answer is yes, they do. You know, the, the discovery of echolocation in bats made it possible to learn that dolphins and other toothed whales are capable of echolocation too, um, and that other creatures can, can pull off this skill. Um, so it, I think by, by Think by unfettering our imagination, by, by allowing by allowing us to think more about what animals are, do, are doing, we actually open the door to new discovery as well as more curiosity and empathy and all the rest. For sure. Well, I want to let folks uh, know who you are who may be just tuned in a bit late, and then I want to come back to a sort of the flip side in some ways of the echolocation thing that you mentioned. But this is Talking Animals on WMF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you did just tune in, my guest is science journalist Ed Young, staff writer at the Atlantic winner of the Pulitzer Prize for explanatory reporting about COVID-19 and author of books most recently, An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. If you'd like to ask Ed a question or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663. Email dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885. So your book is not only just replete with fascinating information, reporting, research, etc. on 
the various senses of, of animals. But it does, as I noted a moment ago, show how it's possible and not, I guess, all that uncommon in some senses for humans to come back the other way and embrace an animal uh, perception. I'm speaking, of course, of Daniel Kish and uh, his own, you know, blindness uh, spurred basically echolocation like the bats we're talking about, like the other animals. Can you talk a little bit about his story and some of the things we've learned from his embracing and mastering really of echolocation? Yeah, um, Daniel uh, was blind from close to birth um, and uh, gets around um, by echolocating. Um, so he makes um, sharp, loud clicks with his tongue and he uses the returning echoes to perceive the world around him. You know, I've gone for walks with him where, yes, he's using a cane, but he's also um, uh, bolstering that with the information he gets through echoes. Um, you know, he can tell me when he's about to hit um, an, uh, a low-lying branch of a tree in our path. He can point out um, houses and um, parked cars, shrubbery um, that, that we walk past. Um, it's sort of an incredible skill, um, except, you know, he would point out that it's a skill that many people can develop. Um, uh, he was particularly encouraged to do so, or at least he wasn't told that he couldn't do that by his parents at a young age. Um, and, and he sort of developed this in, in, in um, this really incredible and fine-tuned way of, of deploy, deploying echolocation. Um, I think it's really interesting talking to a human who can do this, because obviously um, Daniel has language, right? We speak the same language. Yeah. He can tell me interesting things about, about echolocation. For example, you know, he, he talks about how um, it's really hard to echolocate small objects on a large surface, like a table. Like, that's something that he's bad at, but it's actually something that bats are bad at, too. Too. Like finding an insect sitting on a leaf is really hard for a bat because the big echoes from the leaf drown out the small echoes from the insect. Um, but there's also stuff that we, we still struggle to understand about each other's experiences, even though we're speaking the same language and have access to shared vocabulary. Um, so because Daniel was um, blind since almost birth, um, he, uh, he can't fully explain what it's like to perceive the world through echoes. Like, a lot of his language is, is, um, is full of visual terms and visual metaphors because he lives in a society dominated by that. But when he says things like, you know, he gets a bright image, is that the same as what I think of when I think of a bright image? It, it, it probably isn't. Um, so one of the crucial things about the, the book and about this Umbel concept is that it's always going to be very hard, perhaps impossible, to fully think, um, step into the sensory world of another creature. And you know, in, in talking to Daniel, it became clear to me that this is even the case when you're talking to another person who has access to, this, um, to uh, the wonderful gift of language that, that we all share. Um, there's still going to be this, this subjective chasm between my sensory world uh, and his. Yeah. And that chasm can only be let um, with a feat of imagination, which you know, bring, brings us back to, to what you raised earlier. This is why imagination is so, so crucial to this enterprise. You know, you're, I'm, I'm never going to fully know what it's like to be Daniel or a bat or a mosquito or my dog. But I think the core argument of an immense world is that it's worth trying. Yeah. Really worth trying. Well, let's, uh, we have a caller. Let's see if we can get them involved in the conversation. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Ed Young. Go ahead, please. Oh, 
Maybe we might have lost him. Okay. Well, call back if you... Uh, sorry, I know you're holding for a while there. I apologize. Yeah, so one of the things, the last thing you just said, it reminded me that as I was reading An Immense World, mindful of how the animal senses you were exploring these chapters had little or no overlap other than sometimes symbiotic relationships. Um, or maybe this is our caller. We're going to try again. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Ed Young. Yeah, I think it's me. Can okay. You hear me? Please, yeah, please go ahead with your question or comment, Fred. You know, right at this very moment, I'm reading the book. I love the book, and especially the introduction, the beginning of the book, how you imagine the animals in the gymnasium. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God, that would definitely <laughs> drag me into the book. It was great. Thank you. And, and you know what? All the, um, all the preparation you had to do to make that book, when you talk about all the animals, thinking about, look at all the homework you, you did. And especially, like, um, I never knew all that, all the senses about elephants. So, um, and uh, sum it up, I think you did a great job. Thank you. Well, th- th- thank you for your call. Thank- Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, elephant fans will have a lot to, to love about the book. They show up in, in multiple chapters. Um, you know, the, the caller talks about uh, uh, the, the opening of the book in which I ask people to in, in, uh, imagine a space, like maybe a school gym, in which there is an elephant and a rattlesnake and a bee and a songbird, a, a human. Um, it, it's an exercise that I think conveys the above concept well, because in that space, each creature is, is sharing the same room, but has radically different experience of it, experiences of it. So, you know, uh, uh, the elephant may be hearing low frequencies that the bird can't hear. The bird may be sensing the magnetic field of the earth in the way in a way that the bee can't um, feel. Um, the bee is seeing ultraviolet colors that the human can't see. Um, you know, we, we all, even if we're next to each other, have very, very different experiences of the same space. And I think that, that you know, that opening scene with, with the gym and the animals does uh, prepare people for the imaginative work that is necessary for the rest of the book that we've already talked about. Yeah. Well, that's what, as I was starting to say before we invited the, the caller to join us, as I was reading the book, I was mindful how the, those senses you were exploring didn't have much or any overlap in some cases other than, again, some symbiotic relationships that you described. So I started seeing the book as almost sort of a clearinghouse of, of, of sorts where, you know, there's no reason that a particular animal or critter uh, talking, you know, about how they perceive color, let's say, or vibrations or whatever would care or could do anything about the information about some of the other senses. It's sort of ultimately just for us humans, but it's really for us humans. And so, uh, again, it really should be embraced in a way that you can really not just expand your imagination, but really see the world in a broader sense in all kinds of ways that, that are animal-related but human-related just as much. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in that um, in that. Uh, imaginary gymnasium full of animals, right? Yeah. Is the elephant sitting there wondering what the bird sees? Is the bird thinking about what the bee feels when it lands on a flower? I, I don't think so. You know, I, I don't think so. Because even with even when you think about humans, this act of understanding that other animals have other umbelts and trying to consider those sensory worlds, that doesn't come naturally. You know, that took like... Um, millennial centuries of philosophical thought and scientific experiment to get to the place where I could write this book. So I, I do think there's this ability to step into and even contemplate the sensory world of other animals is probably uniquely human. Um, and if that's 
the case. I, I see it as a gift, um, you know, something that we um, we should cherish and make full use of. For sure. Well, this kind of reminds me of a question I also had along the way, because in reading An Immense World, I, I did get to thinking about one topic that surfaced periodically on this show over nearly tw- 20 years that we've been doing this, um, and that's anthropomorphism and how it's viewed by scientists and others has shifted, uh, at least in some circles. So I I couldn't help but wondering where you stood on anthropomorphism before you started working on the book, and in what ways, if any, did your perspective change by the time you had completed the book? Yeah, you know, I think there's a couple of sides to it, right? Like, I I think that um, by thinking about animals through a human lens, uh, we often misinterpret um, their behavior, um, but also uh, it helps us draw um, parallels between what they're doing and ours. It points to, to um, uh, uh, sources of um, commonality, like share, our shared um, history, our shared evolutionary history. Um, I think, though, that the, the, the argument I make in the book is that um, one very pernicious and subtle form of anthropomorphism that we don't often think about is in thinking that animals have the same sensory world as we do. And that can be detrimental, right? Like we, um, a lot of dog owners forget that dogs live in a world dominated by smell. um, And that, you know, for, for a dog on a walk, Smelling is a really important part of its life, of its of its mental life, of yeah. its um, exploration. Um, you know, if you yank a dog along on a walk without giving it a chance to sniff, you're sort of depriving it of an important part of its doghood. Yeah. And, you know, likewise, in the last chapter of the book is all about how um, by flooding the darkness with light and the quiet with sound, we are doing immense harm to a lot of creatures who don't have the same sensory experiences that, that we do, um, you know, who who um, require often the absence of sound or the absence of light to go about their lives. That is a case of us enforcing our own belt on the, of other creatures. And, and this problem of sensory pollution, I think, is, is both huge and a reflection of our um, this subtle form of anthropomorphism right? in thinking that animals could live happily in a world where we live happily. And yeah. that's just not the case. Um, and we need to be more savvy and mindful about that. For sure. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Ed Young, a science writer on staff at The Atlantic, where he was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for explanatory reporting, also received the George Polk Award for science reporting, and he's also the author of books most recently, and the thing we're chiefly discussing uh, today, An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. We do invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing DJ at WMNF.org or texting 813-433-0885. So you didn't just report on the pandemic for which you did, as we mentioned earlier, when, when you're a Pulitzer, but did what also many people did. You got a dog, a corgi puppy named Typo you've alluded to once or twice. Um, now you've been writing about animals and animal behavior for years, but without, as far as I know at least, having any animals directly in your life. So I'm super interested to know how adding Typo to your life maybe influenced your work generally and maybe depending on where it fell in your in your all your reporting and working and writing how it maybe yeah. uh, shaped your book uh, uh, absolutely so um you're, you're right and this typo is my my first uh, pet the first time i've had an animal in my home uh, as well as in my head and, and my heart um and uh it's more that 
I think the book influenced him than, than vice versa. I was already mm. halfway through writing the book before we got him. Um, and, you know, I, the, the chapter on smell, and specifically the section on dogs, was actually the first part of the book that I, I wrote. So I talked a lot to Alexandra Horowitz, um, a dog mission researcher, who, by the way, has an amazing book called A Year of the Puppy coming out um, in uh, a month or so. Oh, great. Um, and uh, she talks a lot about the, the smell world of dogs, how important smell is to dogs. Um, you know, I, I went, I visited her in her lab in New York. I, I um, talked to her about the importance of smell. We, she introduced me to this concept of smell walks where she takes her dog um, on, on walks where the dog decides what to do. And what it does is, is to sniff. Um, you know, she, she doesn't hurry it along. She, if it wants to sniff, um, she lets it sniff. Um, yeah. And, um, that absolutely influenced um, how uh, my wife and I decided to raise Typo. You know, from a young age, we played sniffing games with him. We'll hide bits of kibble around the house and get him to track them down. Um, you know, we uh, when at least once a day when we go on a walk, um, he sets the pace. You know, if he wants to spend 15 minutes sniffing one patch of grass, he gets to do that. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I think that, um, everything that I learned from Alexandra um, tells me that you know, when, when dogs are allowed to do this, they, um, they're happier, they're, they're less anxious, they are more optimistic. Um, you know, I think it's just allowing Typo to be a dog. Yeah. Um, that was really important to us from, from the very start. Um, and, you know, I, I think and I hope that it's made his life better. I'm sure. Yeah, when you're just doing sniff games with your humans, that's a pretty good day for a dog, I think. So Yeah, I mean, he really likes them. And uh, he it, it's amazing how quickly he took to them. You know, so we, we put him in a corner, in a part of the house. We get him to sit and wait, um, walk somewhere else, hide kibble under like bits of furniture around his toys. And, you know, tell him to come find it. And it took, like, almost no training to, to teach him, like, the rules of this game. And I think it speaks to just how intuitive it, it is for them. And, uh, you know, I think he, he really likes it. It, it. it stimulates his brain and his senses. For sure. That's his kind of game. I mean, what's not to like if you're typo? This is like, hey, I could play this all day long. I'm just sorry we have to quit after an hour or so. Right, and it's, it's fascinating for me, too. You know, there, there are certain places in the house where um he actually finds it quite hard you know i can i can put a piece of kibble underneath like uh, the mat where he sleeps and he will still find it but i can put it next to like the feet of one particular chair um and he he often struggles and so so that makes me curious about this environment that i spend all my time in right like is is there something about the airflow near that chair the smell of the chair drown out the smell of the kibble i, I think it 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 cues me in to these hidden aspects of um, even the spaces that I move through in every single day that typos senses reveal and that my senses are oblivious to. And, and that really is the, the crux of the book. That's why the subtitle of the book is, you know, how animal senses reveal the hidden realms around us. And I think with what you're describing about typo, I wonder if there's any truth to the rumor that the next book is Sniff Games with Typo. I think that's uh, that's not a, that's not a book I'm going to write. That is, in fact, just my life, right? Now. Okay, fair enough. So, just quickly, we're just in our last moment here, Ed. But all kidding aside, in reporting on this book, obviously got to speak to so many great researchers and scientists, and have some great experiences with those animals, uh, depending on what, what the animal in question was. 
So I think you obviously uh, just a wealth of experiences, and, and we talked about the, many of those are in the book, many of those are in the footnotes. But did it spur something along the way where you thought, I've got maybe the seedling of the next book when I am ready to tackle the next book? Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I, I don't have a very specific idea, and I usually try to not talk about them until I'm well underway. But, okay. you know, I, I will say that um, my first book, I Contain Multitudes, was about the micro that share our bodies and our lives and the profound influence they have on um, on all of us, uh, our humans and, and other animals. Um, this book is obviously about the sensory worlds that we're missing. There's sort of a thematic tissue, that, that uh, a thematic river that flows through both of these works. It's about um, how biology, how the living world is so much richer and deeper than, than we can perceive. Um, and that um, there are there are all of these hidden aspects to life around us that we are missing. Arguably, that that river runs flows through my pandemic work too, which argue that a lot of the flaws in um, our handling of the pandemic come through these hidden systemic failures in our society that have been amassing for for many decades. So that's a topic that I am continually interested in, yeah. and that I think will probably form the foundation of whatever comes next. Okay. Well, we'll sit tight. I may have to put the squeeze on typo for uh, get, get a little bit of a sneak preview. But uh, th- this has been uh, great. I've been speaking with Ed Young. Again, his new book is An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. And, of course, you can read his work on an ongoing basis in the Atlantic. Ed, thank you so much for joining us today on Talking Animals. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. In a moment, I'll speak with Christina Holtz, who owns Bay Paws Pet Resort. They have two locations, and the Ybor City location is the site of a Clear the Shelters adoption event slated for this Saturday, August 27th, featuring a number of local rescues and vendors. We'll hear more about that from Christina in just a moment. Right now, though, we're going to step into the comedy corner. This is Sean Patton with a piece called Emotional Peacock in today's comedy corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. I don't know if you remember this side note. Like two years ago, a woman tried to register a peacock as an emotional support animal. A peacock, like, first of all, that's a cry for help we all missed. (laughs) Like, what kind of emotional turmoil are you in where you need support from a peacock? A peacock, have you ever seen a peacock? Peacock, it's not, it's not the NBC, it's not that at all. It's a more of a, the, the head gets crazy. It makes that exact sound. Like a, like a demonic turkey, man. And the feathers jut like out and at you. Because in nature, when a peacock unfolds, it is a, it's a mating call or a defense mechanism. It's the only reason it does either. It, it, it means let's f- or let's fight. It certainly does not mean calm down. It's only turbulence. <laughs> These planes are built to handle 100 times worse than this. A peacock, like what the poor woman must have been in such a dark place. Like this t- life is meaningless. It's like a cloud over my head and I'm never gonna snap out of it. And I just don't. <laughs> Thanks, Felipe. You're right. 
I'm going to push on. What are you doing this weekend? There's $59.99 round trip flights to Phoenix on Spirit Airlines. You want to go? I mean, she tried to take a flightless bird on a flight. That was Sean Patton in today's Comedy Corner with a piece called Emotional Peacock, taken from an appearance on This Week at the Comedy Cellar. Now it's time to speak with Christina Holtz, owner of Bay Paws Pet Resort, where in their Ybor City location, they're presenting Clear the Shelters, an adoption event this Saturday, August 27th. This is Christina Holtz on Talking Animals on WNF. Good morning, Christina. Good morning, Duncan. Thanks so much for having me on today. Oh, thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. So let's start, I guess, with maybe just a brief uh, description of Bay Paws Pet Resort to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. So Bay Paws Pet Resort is a local luxury pet resort company. We have two locations, one over by the St. Pete Clearwater Airport and then one over in Ybor City where we're hosting the adoption event. So at both locations, we offer dog and cat boarding doggy daycare, and then full grooming and bathing services as well. So given that those are the kind of services that you provide, which which are obviously good and important, but wouldn't necessarily uh, automatically be a place that would hold a Clear the Shelters event, tell me what prompted you to go ahead and set one up and host one for the Saturday. Yeah, absolutely. So we've always been a big proponent of, you know, working with our local rescues and pet community in order to get um, pets that need homes into fosters and homes. So both of our locations, for example, um, you know, we do discounted boarding for uh, different rescue organizations if they're in between fosters or they need a temporary place to board um, some of their dogs while they're uh, shuffling them around. So we, we we've been working closely with them and with the Big Clear the Shelters uh, annual event. We wanted to help participate. Uh, we just uh, acquired our Ebor C location last November and had done an extensive renovation of that facility. And so it's also just a good way to let the community know that we now have a location there, um, you know, and get the, the local community over tours and a way to connect and provide the space for rescues to be able to meet the public as well. Um, so we connected with a lot of the rescues that, that we work with in the past and um, are just simply providing the space and organizing the events in order to try to get these dogs adopted. Well, that sounds great and makes uh, perfect sense, of course, as well. So maybe you could tell me some of the rescues that will be participating this Saturday. Yeah, of course. So we have some great uh, local rescues that are participating. Um, there's Skyway Dachshund Rescue and Lowrider Dachshund Rescue. So those are two um Dachshund-specific rescues. I'm a mom of dachshunds myself, so I'm always a little partial to them. There you go. Um, but we also have a Heidi's Legacy, which is also a very well-known local um, organization, as well as Florida Giant Dog Rescue. So they focus on uh, Great Danes, Mastiffs, other giant breeds, and Mercy Full Project. Um, so those are the rescues that are participating, and they're going to bring about around 40 dogs. Wow, um, so great. We'll have lots of dogs there for people to meet, and they'll kind of, um, we have a lot of puppies coming as well. Um, one of the organizations just um, uh, rescued a group, a litter of puppies. So we're going to have some puppies to, um, you know, all the way up to adults and senior dogs, um, as well as a lot of local vendors like dog trainers, 
um, a dog uh, charity foundation that works to help, uh, you know, promote and sponsor and get financing for some of the rescues and uh, some other local uh, dog craft companies as well. Well, it sounds like it's going to be quite an event. I'm going to come back and ask you a question about adopting those animals, but let's make sure before we uh, possibly run out of time that we hit all the key details. So again, it's this Saturday, August 27th. If I'm not mistaken, the time for the event is between 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. And it's, a, as we've discussed, Bay Paws Pet Resort. This is the Ebor location. So I think that, is that 1212 North 34th Street? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah, it's right off of Adamo and 34th. Perfect. So now back to the event itself. And it sounds like 40 some odd dogs, including puppies and uh, two different uh, dogs and rescues, among other things. That's great. So how will that actually work? Sometimes these events, you can take a dog. If you find one that you really like, you think is a good fit, you can take one home that day. Sometimes there's still paperwork or an application or even a home visit to complete. So how, how will it work in this case? Mm-hmm. Correct. So each rescue that's participating has um, different rules, but the vast majority of them uh, will require, you know, if you if you go to the event and you meet a pet that you like, uh, then you will need to fill out an application with the rescue um, in order to actually adopt the pet. So you won't be able to actually go home with the pet that day. They would still need to approve you. Okay. Well, that's good because, I mean, I think people get super excited, and uh, but we, we don't want something that's just like a kind of an impulse buy without checking out everything and making sure it's going to be a good fit and that it's going to stick on both mm-hmm. sides. So that's that that seems really reasonable. Okay, so my last question at the moment, Christina, is, is there a website and or social media pages you could tell folks about where they could find out more or follow up if they're interested? Yeah, absolutely. So if you go to our website, which is www.baypaws.com, that's so G's and boy, A-Y, pause.com, mm-hmm. um, we have the Eventbrite link listing right there on our homepage where you can go to the Eventbrite link, register, get all the details and information. And then you can also follow Bay Paws Ebor City on Facebook and Instagram um, to get some more information about the event as well. Sounds great. Well, that's uh, all again happening this Saturday, August 27th. Thank you so much, Christine. I hope that all kinds of animals get adopted that afternoon or or subsequently people find their matches that afternoon between 11 and 2. So thank you so much for joining us and talking animals. Appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for having me. You bet. Bye-bye. <laughs> Coming up on WMNF, the music kicks back in. Jim Bannon is in for Scott Elliott today. And uh, he'll be holding forth from noon to 3 p.m. It looks like he's all set up, getting organized, so that's going to be a great show as always. Followed by Robin Hooper with yet another three hours of music after that. And we just keep the music coming as we roll into our block of Latin programming and beyond. We've just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Next Wednesday, I'll with uh, Katrina Shaddix, Executive Director of Bear Warriors United whose mission is to preserve and protect bears and all of Florida's natural resources and wildlife. So all about Florida bears and different incidents that have happened lately and what we should know and do to to protect and help our bear friends, etc. That's all next Wednesday on Talking Animals, so I invite you to join us then. Also invite you to visit TalkingAnimals.net for audio archives of every show we've ever broadcast, Apple Podcasts, Railroad 2, as well as other podcast platforms. Also, links to our social media pages are there. It's all at TalkingAnimals.net. I'm Duncan Strauss. Thanks very much for listening. Have a good week. Be kind to animals. Be kind to others. Be kind to yourself. This is Talking Animals on WNF Tampa, Brandon, Clearwater, Largo, Wikiwachi, and beyond. My thanks again to Ed Young and Christina Holtz, our guests today on Talking Animals. 
And we're going up to get five minutes of NPR News headlines and then Jim Bannon in for Scott Elliott. Stay tuned. We'll see you next Wednesday on Talking Animals. Thanks. <laughs>